Well, good morning. If you're watching this video, uh, hopefully everything has gone well with the baby. And I uh, just want to ask for your prayers for Carrie and I and for the baby. And uh, again, just so very thankful. So we pre-recorded this message just in case we would need it. Uh, we're continuing in the Exodus plagues this morning. Uh, we'll be in chapter 9, uh, verse 13 through the end of that chapter. And with that, if you have your Bible, I will begin by reading. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls, hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as has never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall say no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh, sent, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. 
So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And again, we continue to pray for your word, that even though we are not uh, all physically together today, Lord, that your word is everlasting and true and living and active. And so we pray for this message as we continue in Exodus. Lord, and we continue to be pointed to pray that we be pointed to you as we study these passages. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we ignore warning signs. Pharaoh was given several. A person ignores a check engine light, ignores something that a doctor tells them. Sometimes CEOs of companies ignore warning signs from their employees. Cybersecurity experts warned Equifax that their data was vulnerable and could be easily hacked. They didn't listen. And a data breach happened a few years ago, which compromised information for 145 million Americans. Companies like General Motors and Toyota have been warned about safety issues and ignored them. Pharaoh has his kingdom turned upside down by a series of plagues and yet continues to resist the one thing that has brought the promise of relief, letting the Israelites go. We're continuing in the plagues of Exodus. This morning we look at the seventh plague, hail. In many ways... A tremendous hailstorm seems like the stereotype for a good plague. The heavens opening up and God unleashing destruction, thunder and lightning and hail. And with that, we'll jump into our passage this morning, beginning in verse 13, where Pharaoh is warned. And I should say that we're going to look at this section since it's one plague today in three scenes. First scene, Pharaoh is warned, beginning in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. So as we saw in the first and in the fourth plagues, Moses is instructed to confront confront Pharaoh with a warning. And to do that in the morning time. And there's actually a pattern to the plagues where they go in three cycles, each consisting of three plagues. And across the plague cycles, there are similar patterns to the first plague in each cycle. There are patterns to the second plague in each cycle. And there are patterns to the third plague in each cycle. So the first nine plagues are in three cycles of three. As an example, the first plague of each cycle, Pharaoh is warned in the morning. The third plague of each cycle, there's no warning at all for the plague. So there's a a little bit of a pattern that happens. Now, we've talked throughout this series of various creation themes in Exodus. And I think about that and how interesting it is to see how much order there is to the plagues. Because Genesis gives us a very structured, very orderly creation. And in the plagues in Exodus, we are seeing a very orderly uncreation. Now, before we continue in our passage, I have one question. Why? Why has this all happened? What's it all been for? Again, this is the seventh plague. And there will be three more to come. 
Ten divine judgment from the Lord upon Pharaoh and Egypt. Why? Why didn't God just free the Israelites? Why didn't he just teleport them from Egypt to the promised land? Why didn't he just strike Pharaoh dead and have a new Pharaoh who would be more sympathetic or who would listen? Why didn't he just start with the last plague first and free Israel then? So often, we ask why God does the things that he does. A person praises God for being healed of a disease. Someone asks, why would God let you have it in the first place? A person talks of God's protection by being rescued from a natural disaster. Someone asks, why did God allow that to happen in the first place? So often, we want to ask why God allows any bad things, but never question why a God gives sinful people in a fallen world any good things. Whenever we look to why God does something for his people, a person can always ask why God didn't do things differently. But in our passage, verse 15 tells us something very important. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, let's not overlook this. I want to read it again. That this is what the Lord said to Pharaoh. I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from all the earth. God is saying, I could have just wiped you all out. Verse 16 though begins, but for this purpose. But for this purpose, all of this is happening. But for this purpose, I have not wiped you out. But for this purpose... I have brought these plagues. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God is doing all of this to show his power and for the glory of his name. Now, people might question that. Wasn't that kind of vain? The gods of our age... The Egyptians had their own pantheon. They had their gods for various areas of life. They had gods for the things that they valued. The river was central to their lives. So they had gods of the Nile. Family was important. So they had fertility gods. They cared about the afterlife too. So they had gods of life and death. Their agriculture mattered to them. So they had gods of the crops and gods of the livestock. Our world makes up gods too. We think we're so different from ancient peoples. Everyone, regardless of if you're the most devout person of faith or the most ardent atheist, everyone has something that they value above all other things. And whatever that thing is, is your God. In our day, we can worship ourselves. We can worship our family, money, success, Accomplishments, pleasure, leisure, possessions, security, health, politicians, celebrities, and sports, just to name a few. 
Those are areas where we can put our hope, where people try to find meaning, where people try to find their identity, in the things and people that we glorify. Now, none of those things are bad, but they all make bad gods. And so God has kept the Egyptians alive. He's kept Pharaoh alive for the purpose of his own glory. Because in the Exodus, God is glorified both in his redemption of the Israelites, in his signs, in his sparing of the Israelites, in parting the waters of the Red Sea, and leading the Israelites in their wanderings, and being faithful to his covenant promises. God is glorified in all of that. But he's also glorified in his judgment against Pharaoh. God's name is proclaimed throughout the whole earth because of these plagues. Why ten? Ten is pretty hard to ignore. One could probably be ignored. Two might just be thought of as a coincidence. But God gives ten blows upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh, leaving no doubt that he is the Lord. We've talked a lot about how the plagues confront the Egyptian pantheon of gods and doing ten plagues that gave God even more opportunities to show his power over the false gods of Egypt. So in both his redemption of the Israelites and in his judgment upon Egypt, God's name is being proclaimed. God is being glorified. All men will bring God glory in the end. You will either bring him glory through being an example of his grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, or you will bring him glory through being an example of his righteous and holy judgment. And so, yes, God could have crushed Pharaoh right from the start, but he has not because he is concerned about his own glory. Now, God's concern for his glory is something that many people don't like. If God is infinite, why does he care about his name being glorified in all the world? Is he insecure? I think that C.S. Lewis gives some very helpful insights in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. This is a very long excerpt, but I think it's incredibly powerful and helpful. Lewis says... The miserable idea that God should in any sense need or crave for our worship, like a vain woman wanting compliments, or a vain author presenting his new books to people who never met or heard of him. So he's given an example. Again, kind of witty. This idea that God needs to be worshipped. Lewis talks about how to him at one point in his life, It almost seemed like a woman wanting to be complimented. Even, Lewis says, even if such an absurd deity could be conceived, he would hardly come to us, the lowest of rational creatures, to gratify his appetite. I don't want my dog to bark in approval of my books. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or of anything, strangely escapes me. I thought of it in terms of a compliment approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check. 
Lewis goes on to say that the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite book, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles. Might be a British thing. Even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humble and at the same time the most balanced and capricious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. I'll pause from that quote for a moment. So what Lewis is saying is that he used to think of God, again, like a woman who wanted to be complimented. But he later realized that truly enjoying anything ultimately results in the praise of that thing. That we praise what we love. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is a pointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Lewis says that the, worthy, the worthier the object, the more intense the delight. And one final quote from a few paragraphs later. Lewis says, the Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. The byproduct of knowing and loving an infinite, almighty, eternal, holy, and righteous God is that we glorify him. That last sentence was, was me, not Lewis, by the way. I forgot to say in quote. So what Lewis is saying is that it's not about God being vain or insecure or needing us. That we need God. And to truly know and love this God naturally leads to worship and the glory of God. And us glorifying him. To glorify anything else is to glorify something less than God. That is, first of all, sin, but that is also aiming less to what is less than what is greater. Verse 17, the Lord says to Pharaoh, You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Once again, we see God's power that he can predict the timing of this plague. But even in the warning, the Lord tries to give some gracious advice. We come to our second part. The Egyptians are warned. So we saw Pharaoh warned, now we see his people warned, beginning in verse 19. Now, therefore, send, 
Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. So they are warned about this great hailstorm that's coming and also warned to bring their livestock into some sort of shelter. It's also ironic that the passage tells them to send their livestock into the shelter. We saw in the previous plague that Pharaoh sent people to investigate the effects of the last plague when he wouldn't send the Israelites into the wilderness. Here, Pharaoh is told to send livestock into shelter. But still, he won't send the Israelites into the wilderness. They're all continuing to use the same Hebrew word for send. All of these examples. Verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Now, it's interesting that some of Pharaoh's servants, some do believe the word of the Lord here. Some take the advice and do bring in their animals. Now, the phrase that they feared the word of the Lord is found only here in the Old Testament. The Bible talks a lot about the fear of the Lord, but here it talks about the fear of the word of the Lord. Now, does that mean that they had faith in God? I don't think that the text gives us enough information to say that definitively. But I have pointed out before, Exodus tells us that there are at least some Egyptians who did become followers. When the Israelites prepare to leave Egypt in Exodus 12, the passage refers to a mixed multitude. Exodus 12, 37 says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. But then the following verse says, A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. The point is that there are people who are not ethnically Israelites who are part of the Exodus. And there will be other references to non-Israelites. Exodus 12, 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So what that's saying is that a non-Israelite male who wants to become Jewish, once he's circumcised, he will be treated like any other Israelite. And that there are people who are not Israelites that we see elsewhere in the Bible. Melchizedek. Caleb, Rahab, Ruth, the Queen of Sheba, the Samaritans, among others. Even in the Old Testament, when you have a defined people of God in Israel, there is still a message for the world about how God can redeem them. The New Testament has much less emphasis on a specific land, but instead focuses on a gospel that is for the whole world. And it's possible that we get one of the earliest glimpses of this in Exodus 9, as some of Pharaoh's people begin to take seriously God's word. And following his instruction, it does show a certain trust in God. 
So some Egyptians take the word seriously, and their livestock is protected. Others disregard the warning of a storm. Keep in mind that in Egypt, the probability of a thundering hailstorm would probably seem just about as plausible there as us being told here in Illinois that a volcano is going to erupt and cover us in ashes. That might be a slight exaggeration, but not by much. The part of Egypt that the Exodus takes event, that the Exodus events take place in receives, on average, far less than even one inch of rain per year, and sometimes no rain at all. So, our idea when we see big summertime thunderstorms is pretty rare there. But with seeing the other plagues. Even as improbable as a hailstorm might have seemed, some of the Egyptians took it seriously. And we come to our third scene, the plague, verses 23 to 26. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land in Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Incredible destruction. Thunder. The passage says... Lightning ran down from heaven. I'm sorry, it says fire in the, in the passage. Ran down from heaven, which I take to refer to lightning. And of course, hail. I once saw a hail storm when I was a student at Trinity. It totally covered the ground in just a couple of minutes. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. A few things about this seventh plague of hail. Hail is seen other places in the Bible as divine judgment. We see that in books ranging from Joshua to Psalms, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. The plague says that the hailstorm destroyed crops. But it's actually the same Hebrew word for vegetation that's used in creation. Once again, showing the uncreation that is happening in these plagues. And as we again have seen in other plagues... We see this as an attack on various Egyptian deities over the sky, over the crops, and over the weather. The Lord is showing his power over all of them. In the passage, Pharaoh wants to talk to Moses, verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent, that word sinned again, and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now, it's very significant that Pharaoh acknowledges his sin. But we will see that this is short-lived. But it's interesting that he even begins to acknowledge that his own actions are wrong. Repentance matters. But just saying you're sorry or saying you're wrong is not repentance. Because repentance also involves change. Pharaoh pleads with Moses... To ask God to stop the storm. And he says, I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. In verse 29, 
Moses says that he will plead with the Lord. As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And Moses does this. And the chapter ends in verses 34 and 35. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Pharaoh has indicated that he was repentant. But when it came to putting repentance into action, we see that he again reneges on the deal. The Lord does not desire empty words or meaningless repentance. He doesn't want empty acknowledgement while we're still totally going to do what we want to do and totally continue in sin. He desires followers who will come before him in worship and reverence. He desires faith. God wants us to recognize our sin and need for grace. As David said in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus welcomes us to come to him. Though we have hard hearts, he promises to remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Jesus welcomes us to find grace and life and forgiveness in him when we come to him. That is the good news of the gospel. Pharaoh again and again sees the Lord at work, sees the Lord's judgments, sees the Lord working. Here's the word of the Lord. Says he's sorry and has sinned, and yet continues to go down the path where he's doing what he wants to do. That is not the way to God. God desires faith, repentance, to turn to Jesus, to live the life that he has for us. That's what God invites us all to do. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. And Again, just continue to pray for this church. Lord, may we be a church of faithful people. Lord, there are so many competing voices and views in our world. Lord, may you be our north star, our guiding light who points us to truth. Because you are truth. And as Jesus says in John 17, your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen.